Jesus, preparing your heart to make a brotherhood agreement. So as uh, Brother Steve was saying, actually beginning with the church meeting on the last Wednesday evening of October, we will be focusing uh, weekly on Wednesday evenings on um, a church, a brotherhood agreement. So uh, I want for us to think today about preparing our hearts to make a brotherhood agreement. So when the bulletin bulletin announcement went out, and uh, if you look in the announcement and you see the title of the message, I could not, of course, know what registered in your heart. But as I announced the title here this morning, I can look into your faces. And I'm kind of wondering, when you think about preparing your heart to make a brotherhood agreement, does this like bring inspiration? And you say, great, this is going to be a way for us to, to be more effective in our Christian lives and more effective as a church. Or does, it, does the fact that most of us have probably had in our church life history some kind of negative experience or connotation associated with a brotherhood agreement, and it brings instead some trepidation and maybe even heaviness of heart. So uh, I want for us to uh, to think about uh, preparing our hearts to make a brotherhood agreement, and I am uh, proposing to you that this exercise that we will go through will be a time of inspiration and of of uh, you know solidifying who we are, what we stand for, and how best to portray the image of Christ in a culture that does not know what he is like. So what we would want to do this morning, I'm looking here, we've got uh, like 35 minutes. So uh, here are the things I would like uh, to, to, for us to cover this morning. First, some texts to set a biblical backdrop for this subject. And that's actually the longest section, I think, of this presentation. And then uh, an historical overview of uh, brotherhood agreements. And then ask the question, what can we learn from the New Testament? How can we apply the New Testament today in this area? And then preparing your heart. So what's that five? Five times seven is 35. So we're going to launch right into this uh, subject, and I wished after I was here this morning that I had uh, used a different color folder to put these things in so as not to alarm you. Texts to set a biblical backdrop for this subject. Our first text is in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, and the purpose for reading this text is to, uh, to cause us to think And remember that we are being transformed to bear the image of Christ in our culture. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The context here is comparing the Old Testament glory that rested upon Moses from which People needed to draw back. Moses put a veil over his face and it eventually faded. To us today in the New Testament church, where we enter into the Holy of Holies, we look into the face of Christ and we are being changed 
from that glory to this glory, to present the image of Christ in the world today. The next passage is in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, and I'm going to be reading verses 11 through 13, the purpose of reading this passage is to describe the culture of the world in which we bear Christ's image. The culture of the world in which we bear uh, Christ's image, beginning to read in verse 11. And this was part of the discourse uh, when the disciples came to Jesus in Jerusalem before his crucifixion. And after he had said, they left the temple and they asked him the question when he said, I'll all these stones are going to be thrown down. And then he asked the question, they asked the question, what will, when will these things be and what will be the sign of his coming? So it's actually two different questions. And so in this discourse, he explained, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the world in which we live today, I mean, this is, and so without getting into, well, what do the end times mean? I'm going to say, well, at least it means from the time, that period of time after the crucifixion, when we entered into the New Testament church era, uh, we'll call that end times and say, these are the conditions of humanity during this, during the time in which we live and we are called to bear the image of Christ into, in the culture of our world. This is a world in which lawlessness is on the increase. That's like ungodliness is on the increase. And the love of many grows cold, but those that endure to the end will be saved. So this is the, the, these are the conditions. Okay, now, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. The purpose for reading... This passage is to highlight the three great enemies of our souls. The first one is the outer enemy. Let me, actually, let me read the passage first. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here they are, the desires of the flesh, one, the desires of the eyes and pride of life, two, is not of the world, but from the Father. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we have enemies. The outer enemy is the world. That's our godless culture that operates on the principle of selfishness and self-gratification and misplaced values. And then we have an inner enemy. It's our own flesh. We say the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's our own flesh. And then we have a third enemy, and we'll call him the stubborn enemy or the, the wily, the wily one, the devil. This is what the Bible says about the enemy. So in the world in which we live, in the conditions in which the world is, we are called to bear the image of Christ, but we have an enemy, the devil. This is what Jesus, how Jesus described him. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So this is Jesus' description of the enemy of our souls. He's a liar. So he will tell, so just mark this. He will tell us things that ain't so. Okay. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So what is, what is he doing? He's prowling like a roaring lion, seeking whom some, you know, someone to devour. Resist him firm in the faith, is what uh, Peter says. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's a schemer. He is wily. He is tricky. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil. And then uh, to make things more complicated, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness to deceive us. This is from 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. So in summary here from this passage, life is a battlefield. We must be, and the New Testament uses this, this uh, analogy, good soldiers. We must be good soldiers. The hymn writer says, sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain supported by thy word. So many who come to Christ are victims of the mistaken notion that salvation marks the end of serious temptation. That is a misguided idea. And preachers who promulgate that kind of thinking are preaching false doctrine. The fact is that conversion really only marks the beginning of our spiritual conflict. Think about it this way. Before conversion, the devil had his way in your life. He had full sway. Things were going his way, and uh, conflict was no major issue. But when we step to the Lord's side, that's when the devil starts causing trouble. So thus we read in 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called. The Christian life is indeed warfare. So here's the next passage, Hebrews 10.24. So then what can we do to help one another? By the way, I, used the, I was writing each other, help each other, and then decided to use the terms one another because that's the biblical terminology where we, you know, we should do things one for another. So what can we do to help one another? Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So in the King James Version, it says we should stir up one another. The King, uh, that, that's the ESV. The King James Version says we should provoke one another, which is always kind of like this interesting little play on words about, yeah, let's, uh, we should be provoking each other. The NIV says stimulate, uh, spur one another on. The NAS, the New American Standard, says stimulate one another, all the same idea, where, where we should like, help one another by like, spurring each other on, stimulating each other, stirring each other up to love and good works. So the, the message, I thought, uh, captures the whole... I, I'm not sure how the message is, how... I mean, this is obviously high on the scale of uh, dynamic equivalence, not word for word, but this is how it reads. So let's do it. Full of faith, of, of belief, confident that we're presentable inside and out. So they capture that idea. Let's keep a firm grip on the promises that keep us going. He always keeps his word. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out. Not avoiding worshiping together, as some do, but spurring each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching.
So I thought that, that captures the, the essence of this passage very well. So in summary, we are to bear the image of Christ in our culture so that those who don't, who don't know how he looks like or what he looks like can see that by looking at us. Number two, in the end times, confusion, end times confusion, lying preachers will come forward and de- deceive a lot of people. For many others, the overwhelming spread of evil will do them in. Nothing left of their love but a mound of ashes. This again comes from the message. Number three, the devil is a powerful enemy from a worldly culture without and from our own flesh within. And number four, we must help one another stay safe to be good, offensive soldiers and endure to the end. Okay, so that's uh, the section on the the, the text uh, that I want for us to uh, think about to set the context for a brotherhood agreement. Okay, so the, the historical overview. So it's kind of hard to know where to start and where to stop on this subject, other than I will say that all of us, pro- probably all of us, maybe except a few, with exception of a few, all of us would have grown up in churches where there were, we called it a church standard, a church discipline, the ordnung, or a brotherhood agreement. By the way, if you want to read more about this, uh, there is in on Wikipedia, there is a very interesting article on the ordnung. And so, uh, yeah, it's interesting reading, kind of resonates for, for those who, uh, of us who remember hearing that terminology. And uh, it, I will say that it's highly idealistic and probably a little short on realism. But uh, uh, maybe this is the way with lots of things on Wikipedia. So, uh, but, but it's, it's worthwhile reading there, uh, reading. One, one thing I might point out is that, that in my experience growing up in the Amish church, the ordnung was never written. It was always unwritten. And I did not encounter a written statement of practice or church standard until we left the Amish church and joined the Mennonite church. The Mennonites write things down. The Amish just do by verbal transmission. And, and so uh, just, just a, nothing uh, especially noteworthy about that, but uh, just a, a point. But all of these, by whatever name we call them, they refer to a set of behavioral rules to which all church members agree to order their lives. The key point is this, that any rule that is not directly supported, generally speaking, any rule that is not directly supported by biblical references will be justified through reasoning as to why violating it would cause the believer to turn worldly. Let me repeat that. Any rule that is not directly supported by biblical references will be justified through reasoning as to why violating it would cause the believer to turn worldly. So there's a certain, so we say we only put into the church standard what the Bible teaches. Most church standards that I have encountered have more than that. And there's this reasoning that's associated with it. And I'm not saying good or bad at this point. I'd like for you to think about that later then. Disobedience about uh, to these lifestyle regulations is punished by discipline initiated by church leaders, the most severe of which is shunning. This comes from the Wikipedia article. Twice a year at council meeting, all members are asked to express their agreement to uphold the church standard. If there is no church unity, communion may not be observed. In this way, the Lord's Supper becomes a powerful tool to enforce compliance. And uh, this is, of course, a major criticism 
Okay, so has this worked? Well, I would say it depends on what. Well, if you think about how, you know, other than the, the Jews who have for several thousand years maintained a separate, distinct subculture, no matter where the world went, the Jews always were what they were. Other than, than the Jews, Anabaptists have maintained for about 500 years now a separate, distinct church culture. So if your measure is have you is maintaining a separate, distinct church culture separated from the culture in which we live, then it's actually not done too bad. Okay? Can we, can we concede that? If that's the measure. But if the measure is to live biblical lifestyles that portray the image of Christ in our communities and bring others into our churches, then it's been pretty ineffective. So that's why I say it, it depends. So, so uh, the, let's ask the question, well, then, is it biblical? Is there a pattern that can be observed in the New Testament church era to which we can turn? Okay, so brothers and sisters, there are no proof texts here. Uh, you know, in church standards, you know, the, the, the handiest thing is if there is a proof text and you can just say, well, go to that reference and read what it says right there and so there. And uh, are we going to obey the Bible or not? You know, so, so there's, okay, there is no proof text about should we or should we not have a brotherhood agreement or a church standard. By the way, uh, while we're on this subject, we, uh, the church leadership, are proposing to use the term, it's actually plural, brotherhood agreements. And the idea is that there are some, it's like there are a number of agreements we make as brethren. And it, it has to do with our statement of faith. It has to do with some of the practices of the ordinances, how we practice baptism, how we, our understanding of the Lord's Supper and so on. But we here in November, we're assuming that all of that is kind of whether it it's, uh, has been voted on or not, it's kind of like all agreed on. We're talking here about that section of our brotherhood agreements that now is singular, the Christian's appearance. How should Christians appear, though it's only one of the, of the documents? Okay, I'm going to transition now to a section that I call some, uh, like, what can we learn from the New Testament? And here are some errors to avoid. The first one is turning back to law keeping. Now, there's a, there's, I want to be careful with this analogy here. But in the, uh, like, if, if, when you read Galatians, Paul said, I am just amazed at how quickly those who had experienced grace would turn back again to keeping the law for the purpose of being righteous. And so, and, and th- there's almost like this is like a theme that runs throughout Paul's ministry and all of his letters. So there's an error there to, to and, and so there's a, we have the same propensity where we can, having experienced grace, turn back again to law keeping as the motivation for how we live. And that's an error. And it's tricky sometimes because the New Testament does call us to follow teachings about godly living, albeit uh, voluntarily. We should, must never forget and I'm reading this to make sure I say exactly what I mean to say. We must never forget that underneath the New Testament guidelines for godly living is the foundation of God's grace in the, in the lives, in the life of believers. 
Or as Titus said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Okay, so turning back to law-keeping, one error to avoid. Another error to avoid is adding and taking away from God's word. So they're actually, these are two different things, or can be two different things. Adding commandments of men. Jesus had strong words for the religious leaders of his day. He told them that they were replacing God's word with their own rules. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, all those of us who grew up in in uh, settings that were fairly legalistic can identify with this. How that we can like honor with our lips, but our heart is far away. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold the traditions of men. You have a fine way, the ESV says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Mark 7, verses 7, uh, 6 through 9. Essentially, the religious leaders were adding to the word of God by teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. So how might we do that? By adding extra biblical standards, usually cultural practices that are not commanded in the Bible, that often turn away. They serve to turn away and make it difficult for anyone who was not born in our culture to, to join our fellowship. Okay, so how do we take away from God's word? There might be a number of ways, one of which is neglecting scriptures that are hard to practice. That's a, that's a, 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 that's a way in which we take away from God's word. Now, we hardly ever would say out loud that I will follow Jesus and I will obey God's word, except in the hard parts that require too much of me or are socially unacceptable and, and uh, make the price too high. So errors to avoid, turning back to law keeping, adding and taking away from God's word by adding the commandments of men or by neglecting scriptures that are hard to practice. Okay, then uh, uh, another, actually, let me just sum it up this way. I put the summary here. We must guard against a rule-keeping mentality and think carefully about adding man-made traditions or taking away inconvenient teachings. So what can we learn from the New Testament? Here are some errors to avoid. Okay, then there is uh, the Acts 15 pattern to follow. Okay, so Acts 15 is the, that, that uh, conference that took place in Jerusalem where after the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas came back to Jerusalem, and or first to Antioch, and they reported how that Gentiles were being converted and joining the church, and that there was immediately the question, well, do these Gentiles need to, be, uh, to also keep the law, be circumcised and keep the law? And so this was a burning issue, a highly divisive issue. And so what can we learn from how the New Testament church dealt with a highly divisive issue? First, as you read through this, the church sought clarity. Uh, actually, make this, part of your, make this part of your reading between now and our first church meeting. Read Acts 15. The church sought clarity. They did not leave in uh, just, just kind of uh, vague undefined understandings about this. There's a, uh, I'll, I'll put it this way, 
Maybe this goes along in the line of corny jokes that we're adding to this morning. What, what happens in vagueness stays in vagueness. Great lesson in life. The burning question was, are Gentile believers equal members in the fellowship of Jews who believed in Jesus as their Messiah, or must they keep the Jewish law in order to be brothers and sisters? This decision was a seismic shift for Jewish believers. Make no mistake, they, all their lives, their fathers, their grandfathers, their, for generations, they had, in fact, God commanded it. They had maintained separation because God commanded it. And so culture and tradition and God's historic command were all set against accepting Gentiles. And now this question must be revisited for spiritual discernment. And so first they said, we need, it needs to be clarified. And then there was extensive discussion and debate. And then James brought scripture to bear on this question, an Old Testament passage that basically said, God has a heart for the nations. And so out of this came this understanding that there are some minimal requirements. And then these requirements were communicated well. And I would propose that this is a, a pattern for us to, to uh, uh, consider as we discuss matters as a congregation that could be divisive, have the potential to be divisive, that we seek clarity, that we enter into discussion and debate with one another, that we look at what does the scripture say, and then we come to agreement and we minimize the requirements. There's some reasons for that. If there's time, we'll get into, and then we communicate them well. What I mean by communicated well is, is they actually wrote out the requirement. By the way, these, these requirements were, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you do well, farewell. So, and this was put into writing, and then then respected men were chosen to, dis- to uh, disseminate this letter to the churches. And what came out of uh, that con- that, uh, that all of that is that the churches were encouraged and strengthened. The churches were not split. The churches were encouraged and strengthened. It paved the way for Paul's second and third missionary journey. It avoided a church split right at the beginning that would have created separate Jewish and Gentile Christian churches, and it brought the strength of unity to the church instead of the weakness of disunity, and the rest is history of the New Testament church. So how can we apply the New Testament? Well, here's a, a, a goal uh, for our brotherhood agreement regarding the Christian's appearance. Now, I'm honing in now on the, on the Christian's appearance, and what I'm doing here is just kind of like summarizing the essence of what has been discussed so far but not at a congregational level yet. Minimum requirements coupled with biblical teaching, church discussion, clear decisions, and personal responsibility. Okay, just minimum requirements coupled with biblical teaching, church discussion, clear decisions, and personal responsibility. Okay, so what are some maximum requirements to consider? Congregational safety. We've already talked about the, the, the world in which we live. Ideally, we would not need any church standard. 
Because we're all filled with the Holy Spirit, we read the same Bible, do we come to the same conclusions about how we should live in this world? Well, ideally, we would not need a a, uh, brotherhood agreement, but in reality, as a church, we are at differing stages of Christian growth. We have differing stages of biblical interpretation. We have differing levels of commitment, for better or worse. I'm proposing we have differing levels of commitment. We have differing generations who see things uh, differently. We have differing sensibilities about how to best represent Christ in our culture. So we must help each other navigate safely through life as we battle these three great enemies of our souls, the wily devil that works through the world from without and the flesh from within. And then I would add that uh, a maximum requirement, I'm sorry, I had is uh, evangelization, representing Christ in our culture. Our, the goal of our church and the goal of our brotherhood agreement, brothers and sisters, is not to run and hide. Many church standards and are thinking about it is all oriented around running and hiding to stay safe. Our goal is to arm ourselves for, and I'll use this terminology here, the gathering storm. And I'm referring to a book uh, that, uh, that I have no time to go into right now, but it, it captures the idea of the secularization of our culture, where we, our culture that was based on Judaic Christian values is fast turning secular, and we are becoming more and more influenced by very ungodly humanistic ideas. And instead of running and hiding, we must arm ourselves and go into the storm or we'll be blown away. So the goal of our brotherhood agreement is effective Christian living. If you think about it in terms of limitation, well, it describes what I am not allowed to do, okay, then you're missing the point. The goal of our brotherhood agreement is effective Christian living. So preparing your heart to make a brotherhood agreement. Okay, so, uh, so it's about the Christian's appearance, okay? There are two different aspects that come into play. One of them is modesty. Okay, so I'm going to sum that up by saying the misuse of what God has created. So this is your assignment to prepare your heart is to study 1 Timothy 2.9. Okay, so Acts 15 1 Timothy 2.9. The other issue is adornment, the enhancement of what God has created. Study 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 4. Okay, so let's acknowledge that the culture in which we live shapes us. And the culture in which we live has, you know, brings pressure to bear upon us in both of these areas, modesty and adornment. How can we best bear the image of Christ in a culture that's shaped by ungodliness? So I'm, I'm just trying to hear brothers and sisters. I'm trying to lay out parameters and kind of like set our, 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 to set for how we should think about, okay, are we allowed to do this or are we not allowed to do that? That's actually a very poor way to approach this whole matter of our appearance. We should think in terms of we are going into our culture marching into the storm. We are bearing the image of Christ. We're representing him in our culture. We understand the pressures by which our culture is operating, and it's ungodly, and it's selfish in its orientation, and it's used by the devil against the people of God. So in that culture, in that setting, how can we best discern then how should we live? And I would say to, your, to you that uh, these matters are highly subjective, okay? 
So prepare your hearts to discuss subjective opinions. And to do that, here's the last assignment. Study Romans 15 and 16. So in the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15, those four things that the, they were uh, instructed to, the Gentiles were instructed to continue to do, those, that essentially captured the activities that went on in pagan temples. So they basically said, look, you actually can't continue to go to pagan temples and worship false gods when you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you know, that's pretty minimalistic. So, so, so uh, there are, however, then kind of flowing out of that, there came some questions because there were certain, certain believers who said, what does that matter? Those are not real gods. I mean, they're figments of their imagination, aren't they? So if we eat food offered in temples, what does that matter? And there were others whose conscience was stricken. And so the, it, it really comes down to this question of how do we as brothers and sisters in a congregation who have some whose consciences are, are uh, uh, to use the biblical terminology, weak and strong, We'll define what that means later. But there are differences of understanding based on spiritual realities. And Paul said in Romans 14 and 15, be understanding of each other. Respect each other. One one keeps a day for this reason. The other doesn't keep the day for that reason. Don't let it divide you. And so read through Romans 15 and uh, 14 and 15. I would propose to you, it says 15 and 15, but it means 14 and 15. So I propose to you that Romans 14 and 15 will set the tone for how we interact with each other as we prepare our hearts to make a brotherhood agreement about the Christian's appearance. Okay, that brings me to the end here. I'm just going to pause right here and ask, is there anyone who wants to respond here? The mic will be brought there. Yes, um, I want to thank you, Brother Paul. It's a, it's a very difficult subject to discuss, and I, I, I'm probably guessing that most everyone here has a lot of trepidations one way or the other, and I thought you handled that very nicely to walk through it. It's interesting for us coming from the evangelical world into the Anabaptist world, and we've, we've usually come by way of renewal groups like charity or, or groups like that. And um, most of them are in, were in some of the kind of places that I think we are finding ourselves here. But I have not seen this kind of just clarity of looking through some of these principles. I love the idea of making this forward focusing on evangelism and where we're going as a church. However, looking at some of these very clear things of scriptures too. So yeah, I, 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 uh, I appreciate the carefulness as we walk through all this. The other thing is, this is interesting for me. I'm this you know, my whole topic of my doctoral dissertation is on the enforcement of uniformity on the 1920 Mennonites. And I would say that one of the things I'm also very blessed about uh, the ADC and church is, is the idea of being congregational and the idea of the, the concept of uniformity seemed to be something that was a big mistake for the Anabaptists. Before the 1900s, that was just not there. And the enforcement of conferences and, and th- different things like that maybe add a lot to the anxiety that a lot of our, our Anabaptist mm-hmm. people suffer from. You erase uniformity from that package and insisting on conference standards from, from one end of the country to the other, 
you do avoid a lot of things. But on the other hand, as I've been in sort of renewal movements who even claim they don't have a standard, I've seen it being bullied under personalities and things like that. And then what that, the statement is, that which can be scrutin- that which can be defined can also be scrutinized. Mm-hmm. And so when you can talk openly like you're suggesting here, then we can scrutinize the theological and the direction of it. And so anyway, I'm blessed with your, uh, your balance there and be looking forward to... Sp- walking and praying, just like Acts 15 mm-hmm. did, that the Holy Spirit can speak to us and we can have the Amen. same kind of consensus that they had there. So thank you, brother. Anyone else? By the way, I, had, I meant to add pushback, too. If there's somebody who wants to push back, feel free to do that. I want to say then in closing that, uh, that I personally, now you could look at me and say, now, uh, uh, wait a minute, are you, are you being truthful here? I am looking forward to this. That, that I, I, I think it's very healthy for us as a group of brothers and sisters to define what, what our purpose is here, here in, in, in this location, at this time and place, in our culture. And if you think about our, the culture in which we live and the way it's, it's, it's reshaping us into like a secular godless country, here we are and have the opportunity to go into this culture and represent Jesus Christ. And, but it calls upon us to help each other. It calls upon us to find, to be loving with each other so that a culture that is actually so highly individualistic that it can hardly even, like that, that there's this polarization and individuals are going far, further and further apart from each other, that in this culture, we can be a people of unity that actually brings purpose and meaning to life and the, and the definition of what it means to follow Christ in our culture. And if we are so highly individualistic that we ourselves jump on that train and follow the political path that our country is on, then shame on us. 